Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, David Hunt continues to unravel Australia's past in the latest volume of his Unauthorised History of Australia series. Gert Nation, third volume, is as witty and exposing as previous works, an epic tale of charlatans and costermongers, of bushbards and bushier beards, of workers and women who weren't going to take it anymore. David Hunt will be in conversation with Mikey Robbins. Before we start, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And another note, the content of this discussion focuses on the history of late 19th century Australia. I'd like to raise that some of the subject material that the author has examined within their research and writing does cover incidents that some listeners may find particularly distressing, including violence, death, and hate speech and extreme bigoted statements. Here's the host of the event, Mari Madison. Good evening, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the online launch of Girt Nation, the third volume of David Hunt's Unauthorised History of Australia. On behalf of Readings and Black Ink, I would like to welcome comedian and writer Mikey Robbins, who will take over the reins in just a moment. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge that tonight we are meeting, at least I am, on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to all Indigenous elders of Australia and any here tonight. That would be wonderful. I think there are many yarns to tell tonight, see? I'm stuck on yarns. So without further ado, I pass you over to a man of many hats, Mikey Robbins. Mikey's a comedian, a writer, a columnist, a radio and television host, and now the man to launch David Hunt's third volume of The Unauthorised History of Australia. Over to you, Mikey. Thank you, Marie, and good evening, everyone. And uh, well, should we say hello to, to the man of the moment? It's... Uh, as uh, Billy Bragg once said, the difficult third album, he's just attempted the difficult third book, mm. um, and it, it is fabulous. David Hunt, uh, thank you for joining us. And before we before we get into it, mate, congratulations. It's, it's a cracker of a read. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Mikey. Uh, yes, no, it has been a, a difficult uh, third album. It's sort of my jazz funk odyssey uh, attempt at Australian history. A little bit different from my earlier sort of electro-pop stuff. So I've enjoyed writing this one actually more than the others, and I didn't think I would because I thought that once you get up to all of the boring stuff like Federation and the Constitution, people, politicians, uh, great figures of history would be fairly similar to the way we are now and they'd lose some of their appeal. Sadly, I was mistaken because... The late 19th century was full of nutbags, ratbags and other assorted uh, mixed bags. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pleasure to write. Well, actually, David, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, when we were taught history at school, Federation was that sort of dull thing that happened in between the gold rush and Gallipoli. Yeah, the F word, yes. Yeah. Yeah. and you've managed to make 360 entertaining pages out of that. When I first got my copy, I thought, is this just going to be a book about <sighs> meetings? And there are meetings in there. Mm. Constitutional uh, conventions, they're called, Mikey. But also, too, it, it's about the making of a nation and a nation's mm. character. Mm. When you sat down to, you know, to start researching a book, did you know where it was going to take you? No, look, I, I was originally planning on ending in, in World War One at the start of World War One, because, as you Melbourneites would know, the, the first Allied shots uh, fired in World War I were actually in Melbourne port uh, as, a, as a German steamer was trying to get out just after war had been declared. So uh, we got in first before the Brits and before the French and before others. And I thought that would be a good ending point. Um, as usual with my, my books, um, it became clear that it would be an absolute doorstop if I wrote that far. And early on in the process, I realised that Alfred Deakin, our second Prime Minister, was going to be a character who I could hang much of the narrative off yes. uh, because he had his finger in so many interesting pies and was part of so much of the development of an Australian nation and an Australian identity that I decided that I would actually end with Deakin becoming Prime Minister in 1903. That was way it? you get Federation in. Listeners... Do not be concerned. It is not 360 pages about federation, I no, promise you. No, no, yeah. no but, but I'm really glad you mentioned Deacon because you, mm. you have to say at the end, you weren't expecting him to be the lead character. No. 
But he's sort of the, the pip of your great expectations with this book. <laughs> uh, and a fascinating bloke. Yeah. Um, a skilled politician. But let's be honest, let, let's just talk about the, well, the spiritual elephant in the room. Also, The ghost of, elephant. Yeah, the ghost elephant. The mammoth. Elephant. Yes, a bit, of a, not, a bit of a nut job too, mate, let's be honest. Yeah, look, uh, before, before I slag Deacon off, I've always sort of regarded him as just sort of the spiritual father of the modern Liberal Party and my politics are not naturally inclined in that particular direction. But in researching him, all of the great things that we have, and many of the great institutions that we have in modern Australia and many of the sort of social safety nets were Deacon initiatives that he put through uh, Parliament. He was the guy who gave us sort of a modern you know, the beginnings of a modern social security system, uh, introduced laws to protect workers in factories, including men, not just women and children, which was novel at the time, uh, arbitration. You know, his first act that he introduced into Parliament was an a- animal rights bill. He was, mm. he, was, he was very much, you know, today he'd be regarded as a bit of a tree hugger. He, he was such an impressive character, but also, as you pointed out, he was Victoria's leading spiritualist. He was the president of the Victorian Association of Progressive Spiritualists. And he, he, did, 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 didn't he commune with the ghost of John Bunyan? The, the American... Well, well uh, the, the ghost of John Bunyan communed with, with his reading audience by possessing Deacon on 49 occasions. And Bunyan, Deacon says, possessed his hand and penned a sequel to the 17th century, The Pilgrim's Progress, yeah. titled A New Pilgrim's Progress, which which didn't sell well, but Deacon insisted that he'd been possessed by Bunyan. He had regular chats with the deceased Prince Albert on Irish affairs, uh, with John Stuart Mill, Shakespeare. His wife uh, was able to channel Shakespeare. He took his first ever political advice from Victorian Premier Richard Heales, 17 years in the coffin before he started advising Deacon, uh, took stock tips from his dead Ballarat accountant. Uh, yeah. So five years, he was still getting share advice from from the dead, he he was not just a spiritualist. He ran as a as a young person in his twenties the Sunday school for spiritualist kids, you know, teaching them sort of necromancy, singing, and calisthenics. Yeah, he was he was he was very into that world. Well, I I, I don't get too sidetracked on it, but but it is interesting that late nineteenth century, not just mm. in Australia, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly England and, and America was was, yeah. grip, was grip with spiritualism. Yeah, I mean, my favourites. You mentioned the book, and I actually I actually wrote about them in mine. The Cox sisters. Yeah, uh, Kate and Maggie Cox, who could yeah they could answer numerical questions from the dead, but actually all they could do was actually crack their knuckles and their their, their, their toe knuckles to count out numbers. But why was it that if I, I, yeah, this is a little personal theory here. You know, if mm. we look at look at the way QAnon and all, all those conspiracies mm. run mm. through the internet, is there a way to say that, that spiritualism was like the late 19th century answer to these conspiracy theories? Well, spiritualism evolved in upstate New York at the same mm. time as a whole lot of other r- religious crazes were taking off Mormonism, um, Millerism, which has become Seventh-day Adventism. So it was very part of this sort of religious revolution in upstate New York. And it was because people were beginning to get the the message that the Bible was not the literal truth. People searching for spiritual meaning beyond the conventions of, of, of the Bible. And spiritualism was given in, uh, incredible prestige when Mary Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's wife, held seances in the White House to communicate with her, her two dead sons. She then, after Abe is shot, she poses for a, a spirit portrait where there's this sort of glowing Lincoln behind her. Shortly after that, her surviving son commits her to an asylum, but not before spiritualism was given real cred in the first house of America. And Melbourne was the the place in the world outside America where it really, really took off. I mean, wasn't there even a, a Nutterwadding Messiah that you write about? Uh, well, yes. Imagine imagine the 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 second coming at, at Nutterwadding. James Morgan Cowley Fisher, the, the Nutterwadding Messiah, who uh, basically establishes a religious sect in which he uh, marries the the daughter of the woman who established the, I think it was the Church of the Firstborn, and, mm. which he, he calls the New Church of the Firstborn. And then he um, proceeds to have a polygamous relationship with his wife's sisters and tells his disciples that they will never die, that he is Christ reincarnate. 
and that the hole he has in his hands, he was an ex-convict and coal burner. He had a burn in his hands. He said, this is my stigmata. And his followers literally roved around the, the, the Victorian countryside banging pots at night to exorcise the devil. So he was one of... The Ngunnawading Messiah was one of Australia's sort of early cult leaders and had quite a following. Because, yeah, it wasn't just Deacon. I mean, it, it, particularly in the first part of your book, this spiritualism mm. keep, keeps coming up. Yeah. Uh, another thing which keeps coming up too is there was a bucket load of poetry going around Australia at the time. Yeah. Everyone yeah. was a poet. Everyone was a poet. And, yeah. um, look, it's really interesting. I've, I've actually got a lot of poetry in this book from yeah. different poets, primarily Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson, um, but, <laughs> but others, others as well. And what is really interesting is the way that the bush myth ah. coalesced in Australia. It was really poetry that, that kicked that off. And the earliest poets who wrote in sort of a bush vibe actually wrote about racehorses. Uh, Adam Lindsay Gordon, known as the poet of the horse, he wrote in a fairly plummy, affected style, but he wrote about racehorses. And when Banjo Patterson started writing, his first poem uh, was actually under the pseudonym El Mahdi, who was the most hated hardcore Islamist cleric in the world who just beheaded uh, General uh, Gordon in on the steps of... Khartoum uh, in the Sudan campaign where Australia had troops. And Banjo writes a poem as Al Maddy basically calling on jihad and calling for the Australian troops to be or the New South Wales troops to be swept out of the Sudan like sands before the gale and he ends with the line, God and the prophet, freedom will prevail. So Banjo starts as a sort of, um, you know, a sort of jihadist poet for the bullseye. I know. I don't, and, I don't, and, and then changes and starts writing about horse racing. Well, actually, I'll, 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 I'll get back to poetry and horse racing later, mm. but I'm glad you mentioned the sedan mm. because it's one of those little bon mots, dare I say, in the book mm. that I really picked up my ears because, you know, high school reading, you know, I said we know Gallipoli. We know there were some Australians in the Boer War. Mm. I had no idea how many troops A we had in Sudan mm. and how much of an impact that had back home. Yeah making us look a little bit sideways at being still part of Britain. Yeah, look, uh, the Sudan campaign was the first real flexing of, of Australian military muscle. Not that the Brits actually let us do anything important. They, we guarded a, a railway track out in the desert um, and we had seven casualties all, all to dysentery. Um, uh, uh, so those were our first war dead. Um, but one of the things I'm interested in doing all of my books, and this one in particular, is looking at at what's going on in the rest of the world yeah. and how that impacts on Australia. So there's quite a lot of stuff on the China relationship. Also, the fact uh, that Australia had troops that occupied Peking as Beijing was then known in the Boxer Rebellion. So we sent troops to occupy China after China had had a pretty bad time of it for, for decades at the hands of the Brits and every other sort of Western power. Uh, and the Sudan and the Boer War. So all of these conflicts actually had a role in promoting a sense of Australian nationalism. And that uh, Sudan in 1885, coupled with a desire to keep the French and Germans at bay in That's, the Pacific, yes. those those factors really led to a hardening of national sentiment and, hey, let's, let's be our own nation and kick some some French and German arse. Well, I'm glad you mentioned French and German mm. arse mm. because in, in the rush in the rush to, to nationalism, that is often overlooked mm. that, you know, the Germans are up in New Guinea and the French in, mm. in the South Pacific. Yeah. Australia did actually feel quite under threat from, yeah. from, from the French and the Germans. Well, we've, we felt under threat from everyone. Yeah. Um, so and, we, and we still do to some extent, don't yeah. we, so, so we were concerned that the Russians were going to invade for many decades, concerned that the French were going to invade, concerned the Americans were going to invade. They actually um, briefly occupied the Lesapedes Islands off the coast of Western Australia where we, where Western Australia was, was mining bird shit, its, its biggest export at the time. Um, and the Americans sort of set up shop and this was a major diplomatic incident that had to be diffused by Britain. So we were concerned by everyone. It would be fair to say that we were most concerned at the back end of the 19th century by the Chinese. Mm. And up until the middle of the 19th century, Australians had quite an outward-looking approach to Asia. They wanted to build a port in Darwin. 
uh, filled with Malays, Chinese, mm. uh, people from Sulawesi, and make it an Asian port to, to have trade and commerce with Asia. That all disappeared at the back end of the 19th century and you've got acute Sinophobia, acute fear of Asian invasion, um, and, 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 and that led to white Australia, a policy that made us sort of a bit of an economic um, and, and social backwater for many decades. There's a point you, you, you make later in, in the book, you know, and I'll mm. just not jump into the, the murky pool of history wars too early, because there are some historians in Australia, and I'll let you name them, huh. who, who like to sort of uh, brush the white Australia policy under the carpet as it was... A Keith Winshuttle! Yeah, you know, as as it had you know, economic and, and union, but you know, as you say yourself, you know, and, and 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 you show prime resources mm. at the core of it was just straight out bloody racism. Yeah, look, there was the fear of of miscegenation, which was was essentially interbreeding, and the fear that the yellow races uh, would dilute the white races and make them less able to protect themselves coupled with a fear of, of, of Chinese invasion and later in the, in the early 20th century that changed to a fear of Japanese invasion, even mm. though Japan was a British ally. Um, and there's no doubt uh, that, that the, the racism was not just economically motivated as some historians like Keith Winshuttle would insist. Um, uh, people made it quite clear where they were coming from. The Labor Party... Uh, which was forming um, in the the 1890s in in the various colonies, turbocharged that racism. It, it, if you look at the early Labor platform, it's very much like the One Nation platform today. Yes, and and it placed race central. White Australia was central to its to its policy. And when that started working and gaining traction in Queensland, and Queensland had the first Labor government in the world, I think in, in 1896, from memory. Uh, um, other Labor parties thought this is something we can really latch on to and feed feed the flames of xenophobia, and they were very effective in doing so. Well, actually, one of the most bizarre examples from, from your book was uh, it was an article in, I could be wrong, it might have been the bulletin, you'll know better than me, which tried to link vegetables grown in Chinese markets mm. with the spread of syphilis. Mm, and leprosy. Liberty, in fact, yes. it, it, it was it was regarded as such a serious point that there was actually a royal commission into the Chinese and the opium trade, where the royal commissioners seriously looked at whether there was a secret plot to infect Australian women with Chinese vegetables, uh, which would would give them venereal disease and, and leprosy. And we actually had a serious politicians would get up in Parliament, they would argue that. Uh, uh, also, that leprosy was spread by rabbits uh, that that had been captured by the Chinese and re- released to spread the disease. So, if we look at things like kung flu and Asian yeah. China, China virus today, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. At the, the back things. end of the eighteen nineties, yes. the Chinese were blamed for pretty much every disease outbreak there was going. They were seen as carriers of disease, and it was believed that there was a deliberate plot in in by some people to infect. Australians to make them weaker and riper for invasion. Actually, David, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because this is, mm. is, is is your third history book, and as you know, mm. I, I dabble in a bit of history writing myself. And do you, you're finding the thing: the more you research, the more you read, the more you write, the more you yeah. think about it. To paraphrase David Bowie, as a species, we're always crashing in the same car. Yes, yes. Uh, although, you know, we've upgraded the the cart, the dog cart, driven by. Mm. by Billy Hughes. Mm. Um, this is a man who, after he wins his first election as a as a Labor MP, is towed through the streets of Sydney in a dog cart by, by a not particularly large dog. Yeah. Um, I was interested in the the modes of transport employed in the 19th century, mm. which I riff on a bit. There were the dog cart and the goat cart, which today in Britain is known as a go-cart yes. and in Australia is known as a billy cart from the billy goat. Uh so, um, and also, if you if you're looking at parallels between today and yesteryear, which which feature dogs and goats, my favourite fact, my favourite story, yeah. almost that I stumbled across in researching the book, is that of Carl von Lebedur, who was a Swiss uh, German guy who comes out 
Um, and it becomes a champion pedestrian, a champion race yes. walker. He actually is a fraud and races under the name of the world race walking champion. He's later caught uh, as a burglar with the police coming across the description, catching him uh, on, on the grounds of the description, a walking man. <laughs> uh, so good on you, Victoria Police, uh, for catching somebody with that description. Um, he then goes on, of course, to become an Essendon football club trainer uh, and How Essendon wins three titles in, in the 1890s with him as their trainer. And he has a sideline as an, electrical, uh, an electrotherapeutist and uh, another sideline of injecting the crushed testicles of dogs, goats and guinea pigs into chronic masturbators to try and cure them of their masturbatory urges and to come across an Essendon football club trainer who gives dodgy injections to wankers was, was... was I think the thing that made me happiest in uh, in 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 researching this book. Now uh, you mentioned modes of transport, and mm. we're going to have to talk about trains. Now before yep. we get into it, I've got a quick story to tell you. A couple of years ago, I was um, emceeing an event for Gough Whitlam. It was, it was Gough, and, and during the night, Gough received... You name drop them, Mike. I know. It's, it's a big one and it's a clang. But during the night, Gough got given many, many awards and, and prizes, and the, the night was going long. Anyway, near the end, he's up on stage, he's received an award, and he starts talking and he mentions Federation and Railway Gauges. Mm. And Margaret, second name drop, is sitting next to me and she's gone, oh, shit, he's mentioned the Railway Gauges, he'll never get off. But that's the thing, train gauges uh. is, and, and the, tra- I made a note when I was reading this, this book is, your book is, is fueled by trains, poetry, pubs and punting. And um, the trains are, and, but we've got it so phenomenally wrong. We got that bit of it phenomenally wrong. Australia actually had had more miles of railway track than anywhere in the world. And one of the things that we got right with railways was uh, we nationalised our, mm. our railway lines. Even though they started off in, in many of them in private hands, the state decided, as it did with water, that the state would provide rail, uh, which when you're in a desert nation like Australia... If you're in America, you can use rivers to transport freight for long distances. We didn't have that. Uh, the only way that you could get stuff from the interior to the to the p- p- coastal ports if you weren't on a river uh, was was by train. So the train was incredibly important in in the economic development of Australia. But the fact that the colonies <laughs> just built their own rail systems with different width railway tracks. I know. You Victorians, you use the Irish gauge, uh, which is the slower, not not quite up to scratch gauge. Uh, so your trains were slower. Uh, the oh, very brave, speedy, brave man, you're a brave wide, man, wider, man. wider, wider, wider gauge New South Wales tracks. So you'd get to Albury Wodonga. The only reason you'd stop at Albury Wodonga was to change trains because you've got these two different width tracks and you've got this giant platform that has two trains. Uh, from 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 each colony, and everything, all the passengers and all of the goods, all the freight have to be unloaded and reloaded. And when Mark Twain visited in 1895, yeah. he wrote, "Think of the paralysis of intellect that gave that idea birth." And 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 our we we had something like five different railway gauges throughout Australia. South Australia had three different railway gauges internally. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, look. Um, f- Actually, uh, having a common railway system was one of the spurs for federation. Let's let's have one uniform railway gauge. That was a nationalist rallying cry, but none of the, the colonies could actually give up their railways. And in the end, federation remains unless it's for military transport or the states give their railways to the, the feds. It remains a state responsibility. Now, you mentioned Melbourne, and let's open the, the can of worms. Mm. And one of the things that I, I got reading the book was, you know, the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry in mm. the rush mm. to Federation. But it was actually a rivalry, not so much. It, it seemed to be whenever, whenever whenever one city thought the other city was yeah. gaining an upper hand, it wanted Federation. So if, if when Sydney saw Melbourne the ascendancy, it wanted Federation. And when Melbourne's 
you know, Melbourne saw Sydney in the ascendancy, it wanted it wanted federation. There was a bit of it, it flowed a, a bit of both ways actually. Yeah. For a while, when when Victoria was Victoria was undoubtedly the largest, richest, and most powerful colony <coughs> for the back end of the nineteenth century. Marvelous Melbourne, uh, marvelous Melbourne, and uh, and New South Wales was very worried. Uh, it regarded itself as the premier colony the first and was worried that under any federation Melbourne would basically steal its power and influence. And so Henry Parks, the five times Premier of New South Wales, actually introduces a law in 1887 to rename New South Wales Australia. That is, we're going to get in first, then when you all become part of Australia, you are in fact becoming part of New South Wales. And uh, a, a very witty Victorian MP sort of got up in Parliament and said, no, no, we won't be having any of that. Why don't you name yourselves Convictoria? Because that's what you all are. You're a bunch of convicts and you are second to us in stature. And yeah. um, this rivalry went to the Victoria plans on hosting the first international expo in yeah, 1880. Expo, yes, yeah. And New South Wales has got to get in first, like stealing a major event. Henry Parks has got the first sort of big electric arc lights installed builds the seventh largest dome in the world out of wood in the in Sydney's domain and gazumps the Melbourne ex- exhibition gets in in 1879 and interestingly one of the most popular exhibits in both uh, exhibitions was Chloe the portrait of the nude yes. french lady that now hangs above the bar of the Young and Jackson hotel I have seen uh, in, I, in, I have, in, in Melbourne and started the trend of hanging pictures of nude ladies in public bars and gave rise to the phrase as drunk as Chloe, that is as drunk as somebody who will get all their gear off in, in, in public. So I tell the, the fairly sad story of Chloe. Yes. But also Henry Park sends as, as a centrepiece of the New South Wales exhibition down to Victoria a giant statue of Henry Parks carved out of coal, mm. which New South Wales was very proud of its coal and if you think Scott Morrison today <coughs> enjoys nothing more than fondling lumps of coal like which Gollum with a ring, does. which he, he does. does. He does. He had nothing on Henry who built a giant statue of himself out of coal and gives it to the Victorians as a, we've got coal, what well, have you got? Well, I, I have to say, David, I, I think you, you deal very even-handedly with the characters of the time. Hmm. But if I was to write a... Oh, a, really? Well, oh, shit, I hope not. Well, okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to jump to the next bit. Henry Parks. Yeah. Wanker? Mad rooter. Uh, no, no, also a bit of a wanker? No, look. Uh, Comes across as a bit of a wanker. Well, well, look, he, 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 had a, he had that split public and private life. As a politician, he was very, very good at connecting with the sort of working man. Um, he pursued lots of quite progressive policies. The, the New South Wales public education system actually became a model for the British education system and education systems all around the world, a state-based, state-provided, secular education mm. system uh, was was really the vision of Henry Parks. Um, and Victoria, of course, perfected that and got all of the elements of the modern public education system in place before anyone else in in, in Australia. I guess yeah. you can pick up on that point because I'm, mm. I'm ten years older than you, mm. so I still remember not so much my generation, but my mother's generation, mm. very much. And you, you mentioned this in the book as well the division between private schools, which were predominantly Catholic, and yeah. and, and, and public education, mm. and that is something that you know they were dealing with in the 1880s, 1890s. Mm. And to some extent, we're still dealing with it now. Well, we we didn't deal with it for several decades. So mm. part of the story of this is how private and religious schools were sort of sucked into effectively the state system. Um, Catholic schools, because they refused not to teach Catholic dogma, maintained a fairly strong Catholic school system. Um, but they were really regarded as schools for poorer kids. So there were lots of nuns. And, and priests came out from Ireland yeah. and they were regarded as, as, as not much chop and there were a few elite private schools for, for parents who could pay but there was no state aid of education until Menzies in the 1960s where he thinks if I give the Catholic schools some money uh, um, I can peel the Catholic vote away from Labor. Um, Actually, so, so, sorry Dad, to mm. interrupt, but while we are talking about schools, mm. you've got a cheerio here on the chat board from someone who went to North Sydney Boys High with you. Ah. Jens Fisher. 
Oh, and, g'day, Jens. Yes. Or, he went or, to Neutral Bay Public School with me as well. Yes, and you had another name for him as well. Shall I say it out loud or do you want to? Apparently you used to call him Bacon Balls. Bacon Balls. Well. <laughs> there we are. Uh, Jens is an American. Um, I never knew that I had balls of bacon. No, I, I, think, uh, I think no. you used to call him Bacon Balls. Did I? Jens, I apologise. I apologise. No, I was obviously a cruel... A cruel child. Well, no, he, he says he's gotten over it, but he wants to know that if you were to compose, I mean, you must have this question before, if, if you were to compose the new anthem, um, would you It would replace, definitely have the words bacon balls in it. Yes, indeed. Uh, yes. But would you replace the word girt? Uh, look, I've, I've built an entire literary career on that one word. I'd be foolish, very foolish mm. to get rid of it. Um, I don't, you know, the national anthem... I love it. We had a plebiscite in, yeah. in, in 1976 to choose it. We chose Advanced Australia Fair and the word Gert. Hmm. Uh, the other, the second most popular choice is Banjo Patterson's Waltzing Matilda and I tell the story of how that po- poem and song came to be. But if, if we held that plebiscite today, Waltzing Matilda would, would, would romp it in over Advanced Australia Fair and it is a song about a sheep-stealing hobo. Yeah. yes who commits suicide in a pond, which yeah. he then haunts. Um, is this really the sort of national image that we wish to project for the rest of the world with our national anthem? Oh, I would suggest that would perhaps be a brave and um, and somewhat foolish move. Actually, while, while we're talking about you know, morbid poets, I love your description of Henry Lawson as the um, as Nick Cave, of, the Nick Cave of his times. Yeah, um, very much so. Um, and Lawson was the real surprise packet for me in researching this book. Yeah, and I was jumping in because yeah. I think unlike you, we, we we read Lawson at school and we didn't enjoy it, but you said coming uh, back to Lawson, you enjoyed yeah, it. I really enjoyed it and what I enjoyed was what a miserable bastard he was and perhaps as I've got older I've become more of a miserable bastard and enjoy miserable bastardry a lot more than I did as a kid. But what I would say is he, by God, he can write. And we regard him as a bush poet today. He was an anti-bush poet. He hated the bush. And he spends a lot of time writing about just how much he hates everything about the bush. Um, he hated being known as, as a bush poet. And and he actually has this sort of battle of the bards, uh, you, you know, uh, po- poetry off with, mm. um, with Banjo, where Banjo's writing a poem about how much he loves the bush and Henry will respond with how much he despises it. And that, you know, boosted bulletin sales considerably whilst they would reply to each other on a regular basis with a new bit of poetry about the bush and how wonderful and or shit it was. I'm glad you mentioned the bulletin because it is essential in that rush to create a national identity. Mm. I think you can't underestimate the role played by the bulletin. Mm. Um, I say that, and you mentioned in the book too, both in positive aspects and in very negative aspects as mm. well. I mm. mean, yeah, we like, you know, even the, the, those of us, you know, lefty Republicans, we mm. like to look back on the bits we agree with. Mm. But a lot of what the Bulletin wrote with was pretty bloody awful, mate. Well, the Bulletin, even though the Bulletin gave more journalist jobs to women than than, mm. than any other paper of the era, it also disparaged women frequently. Um, Archibald who's one of the central characters of my book, John Feltham Archibald, who adopted the name Jules Francois and tried yes. to convince everyone he was an arty intellectual French Jew when he was plain old James Feltham from um, uh, from um, um, southern Victoria. Um, uh, and it was xenophobic in the, in the extreme. It was... Um, against the church in the extreme. It was against the British in the extreme. It was a truly nationalist and, for a long while, Republican voice. But it also campaigned against the death penalty and was progressive in a number of areas. And you can actually get a real insight into Australian culture just by reading 30 Years of the Bulletin, which is pretty much what I I did. Um, And I'm actually going to read an extract from, from the book it's from the last chapter, and it is actually about federation, Mikey, and if if you will do it uh, with the footnotes, uh, chapter 12 is called I, One hey, Nation, hey, and it's... I, I have to put my new glasses on, which the, uh, the 25-year-old at Specsavers said look good on me. Yeah, they do that. 
More expensive ones. Uh, uh, this chapter is called One Nation and it's got the, the, the tagline, Australia for the White Man, because that was the bulletin's masthead between the 7th of May 1908 and 30 November 1960. That's wow. when they, they dropped Australia for the White Man. Uh, this is a section called Celebration of a Nation and it's about the first day, the day that Australia became Australia. Aussie, Ooh. Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. Celebration Yay. of a Nation. More than a quarter of a million Sydney-siders, some still drunk from their New Year's Eve revels, lined the eight-kilometre route from the Domain to Centennial Park on the first day of the 20th century. They clambered atop awnings, waved Federation flags from rooftops and windows and generally carried on like galahs. Galah is Australian slang for a fool, deriving from the small pink and grey cockatoo of the same name that's unfairly maligned for its stupidity. The term has largely fallen out of use, despite the best efforts of Alf from home and away. They were watching the great inaugural procession, the first event of the Commonwealth celebrations held to mark the federation of Britain's six southern colonies into the Commonwealth of Australia. 200 mounted police led the procession, confirming the new Australia would be a nation of law and order and horses. It was followed by the first of the allegorical cars, as floats were then known, featuring a young woman in white classical robes, representing Australia, surrounded by trade unionists dressed as shearers, miners and other horny-handed sons of toil, representing the workers who wanted to get Australia pissed at the Centennial Park after-party. The floats and marches were ranked in reverse order of importance, with members of Barton's incoming cabinet the last act before Governor-General Hopeton's grand finale. Everyone who was anyone featured in the 10,000-strong parade, except for the governors of the new Australian states, <laughs> who'd withdrawn in a huff as they believed the new nation diminished their independence and authority. And Cardinal Moran, who'd withdrawn in a huff after being told that as a Catholic, he'd have to walk in front of Anglican Archbishop Smith. As uh, Aboriginal people weren't, dare we say, anyone, they weren't invited. However, a few were shipped in from Queensland for a 7th of January celebratory reenactment of Cook's Landing at Botany Bay, in which they wore feathered headdresses and other untraditional traditional costumes. The Ovens and Murray advertiser explained the lack of Aboriginal people in the inauguration celebrations. A very few of the Aboriginals are left to witness this our crowning day, to witness the triumph of the white race. Australia was born in war and Hopeton, as head of its armed forces, was escorted by troops from the New South Wales Lancers, soon to join their fellows in South Africa. They were part of a broader military contingent, with troops from all over Australia, New Zealand and the United Kingdom receiving rapturous applause. But what's this? There were some coloured folk in the parade. Troops from Her Majesty's Indian regiments were marching with our boys. But it was a party, and it would be rude not to give the Hindus a cheer. The procession passed under ten triumphal arches, each with its own theme. There were the wool, wheat and coal arches, the German, French and American arches, the last described as loud by the bulletin, the Melbourne arch, the soldier's arch and the citizen's arch. The final arch at the entry to Centennial Park was topped with the slogan, One People. More than 60,000 revellers assembled in the park to hear a rendition of Advance Australia Fair and watch the inauguration of Australia take place in the Federation Pavilion, a 14-metre-tall domed octagon described by the Sydney Morning Herald as pure whiteness and chaste beauty. The symbolism of pure whiteness was self-explanatory, but the Herald failed to explain how pavilion can be chaste and what sort of twisted sicko would want to root a building. Inside the pavilion sat the Federation Stone, a sacred symbol of Australian unity that no Australian has ever heard of. The inauguration took place at 1pm on 1 January 1901, which would have thrilled the numerologist in Alfred Deakin. The inauguration was a state affair after all the pomp and pageantry of the procession. Hopeton read Queen Victoria's proclamation that Australia was a nation, swore a couple of oaths, then joined Deacon and other members of Barton's cabinet in signing an oath of allegiance to the Commonwealth. An Australian oath is known as a pen oath. The oaths were signed using the same pen, inkstand and table that Victoria had used to sign the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act. 
which was a nice touch. A 21-gun salute finished things off, and there you have it, a nation was born. And, uh, David, I, I'd have to say, before you go any further, you are the king of the funny footnote. Uh, look, that's it, basically I just write books so I can write footnotes. No, that's, uh, that's the only per- it, I, it, it, Fuck it, it, I should get rid of the book and just write footnotes. No, when I first opened the book, I went, geez, he's got a lot of footnotes. And then I went, oh, I see why. And then my second thought was, geez, I wish I'd have thought of that. It's, my, a, it's a brilliant device, mate. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And my... my this time I actually have a the longest footnote ever at 451 words. Uh, it is a footnote about Thomas the Tank Engine, given that we have a trainee theme in the book. Mm-hmm. And I spent a very pleasant weekend watching Thomas videos and reading up on Thomas. Mm-hmm. And, gee, Sodor is a very – Sodor is pretty like white Australia. There was a terrible class system, the black trains, the diesel trains, diesel, dirty diesel – they're up to no good. They're always stealing Joby wood. Um, uh, yeah, Thomas the Tank Engine, mm-mm. Very, very unwoke. Well, actually, I, 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 while, we're, while we're talking about things like that, there is one thing, another thing I really want to compliment you on with the book. It is very entertaining. Go for it. Go for it. I'm, no, no. I'm all. <laughs> but, but, but also, too, you know, when I say the forging of the national identity, you know, it was not all positive. And no. and you don't shy away from the racism and, and, and the sexism. And you also don't shy away from the ugly truths of racial and sexual violence that occurred in the colonies at the time. Yeah. Um just I've just from a tech not a technical point of view, but those gear changes when you're writing that book, yeah. I mean, you know you have to mention them. And it, it, it's it's this weird thing where like at one point I'm laughing out loud, then like two pages later I'm going. Oh, shit, we did that. Yeah, look, you mentioned the sexual violence and one of the key themes in this book is the rise of women's rights, not just in Australia but around the world. But Australia actually led the world in so many of those areas. And unlike my earlier history books, this one's got some really strong female characters. Catherine Helen Spence appears throughout the book. Louisa Lawson, who had it being known as... Henry Lawson's mum, she was the the editor of the, the Dawn, Australia's first feminist newspaper, and, and an incredibly influential figure, um, uh, Mary Lee in South Australia. So you do get a, a story of the evolution of women's rights and how those women came to take on those leadership roles. But there is there is a, a, a chapter that was a section very, very hard to write called Me Too 1886, hashtag Me Too 1886, which, which is about a, a gang rape that, that took place in Sydney um, by members of the, the Waterloo Larrikin community. Um, and it changed. It was a real Me Too moment because it changed the views of, of people about women yeah. and it, it, it really mobilised women who said we, we can no longer put up with this sort of treatment and if we want to be able to promote more women's safe policies, the only way we can do that is at the ballot box and we don't have the vote. So it it was actually a really important moment in in galvanising women to campaign for more of a say in in Australia's future. I was I was actually rereading that section this morning in, in preparation to talk to you and mm. it is it's a very, very harrowing read. Yeah it is. But, but very, very important very mm. important part of the book. Um, you, you, I, I could talk to you a lot about this, but there, there, when, you, when you talk about uh, you know, the histories of these great people, there's one other thing that keeps coming through, and maybe it's just a, it's a rather personal one, some family history on, on my father's side, but it seems that in the, in the family history of a lot of these large, larger-than-life figures, hmm. um, a lost fortune seems to keep rearing its head, usually at the hands of a drunk man. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, but but you know, I, I keep coming across, you know, this, this, this happened and then the fortune was lost and then the family rebuilds. Yeah. This, this is like it's, it's this reoccurring motive in Australian family history. Well, Henry Parks um, could have been a, a bankrupt um, something like four, four, 40,000 times over, uh, so, so deep he fell into debt and you know, it became a laughing stock that he ran the IOU cabinet where he was always hitting people up for money and was selling political favours. There'd been an ICAC in those days. Yeah. You know, if you donated to the Save Sir Henry and his interesting menagerie and 
and and fund his mistresses and his illegitimate children fund. Um, uh, you know, you 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 grease, you grease the wheel of politics. So um, he, he's, yeah. probably the, he's probably the reason they invented WeChat. Probably, probably just a, just a few just a hundred years too late. Yeah. Um, and and the, the other thing too is, and this is something gets overlooked once again. It's a matter of of, of personal history from from my maternal side. Hmm. You describe us as a nation of greengrocers. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got that that great phrase that you know England is a nation of grocers. Mm. Um, truly, it is it is Australia because one of the themes that runs, one of the themes that runs strongly through this book is that of larrikinism. Yeah. And the larrikins weren't the original larrikins are not the sort of knockabout, lovable, bit sexist blokes of today who no. cook a chicken curry and no. like like a like a going to the footy. The larrikins, the first larrikins that appeared in 1870 in Collingwood and Fitzroy were street gangs. But they took their identity from musical theatre, mm. uh, British musical theatre, and from costermonger acts, costermongers yeah. being mobile grocers, those cockney grocers with their sales patter. And so a larrikinism involved gathering in public places having public dance-offs, sings-offs. It was musical theatre with crime thrown in. So if you were being mugged by the early larrikin gangs, you really felt like you were getting mugged by the cast of West Side Story. <laughs> They'd come singing and dancing and bop. And I think just just one last story before, because it's probably time that we begin to wind up, I'd just yeah. like to mention my favourite larrikin gang of all time comes from Melbourne. It is, of course, the crutchy push at the turn of the century uh, Melbourne Larrikin Gang. It was actually characterised by Premier Peacock as the most feared and despised Larrikin Gang, and all of its members were amputees. Um, all but one of the Crutchy Push had only one leg, and the ring in uh, had uh, one arm, and he used to have uh, a brick in his shirt sleeve that he would swing and use as a weapon, and the other Crutchies would use their crutches as weapons, and they acted as standover men. Uh, they came from South Melbourne. They hated the North Melbourne shinboners. They'd attend North Melbourne football games uh, and, and, and create uh, havoc um, with their coloured coloured streamers and their, their, their crutches. Um, so only Melbourne could produce an all-amputee youth street gang, and for that, thank you very much, Melbourne. Oh, you head in respect. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. To, uh, one, someone has asked the question, and I've thought this before, and mm. not just, I'm, I'm not angling to, to be involved, but there's got to be a TV series in these books at some stage, mate. Uh, look, I'm, 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 I'm working on a, on, a, on a sort of a game show um, uh, format of Australian history um, with somebody else at the moment. Um, but, uh, but uh, look, I think... Interestingly, we've got so much great content now appearing on Netflix and Stan, but the television stations in in, in Australia are sort of dying in the arse. They're not sort of... And to actually create a sort of narrative history of Australia, we pitched it to the ABC a few years ago and um, they couldn't decide whether it was comedy or factual. So that, that, was, that was a problem for them <laughs> with their two different silos. Yes. But it was also a problem for us trying to budget for it because, okay, uh, scene requires big ship, uh, people mm. in chains. Uh, can we please have some Aboriginal people uh, in the bush? Uh, can we have sandstone? And it's very expensive to make a well, good I history History well, show. Yeah, very, I, very difficult. History, the past I, is an expensive place, Mike. I, I know, I know. But, but, but I will say this. If you can come up with a concept for a humorous quiz show, mm. it'll over my head for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yes. No. Uh, well, I, I, we have, um, yes, the way that, that, that you performed on your particular quiz show is one of the, uh, one of the things that has informed this project. So um, oh, well, uh, I, I, I hope um, it, it, it gets up, but I'm not holding my breath. And look, I'm going to tell you my favorite, very quickly, my favorite story because you know, I love the broad scope of history you do, but sometimes it's the little specific things. And a uh, quick example my wife and I were driving through the eastern suburbs of Sydney the other day, going up through Rose Bay, and Laura turned to me and said, Who would design a street this shape? And I said, Well, actually, I just read it, I've read in David Hunt's book, a guy called John Fitzgerald, the town planner, complained about all the streets in Sydney being nothing more than basically 
paved in goat tracks that used to exist. Yeah, the, I think the meanderings of an errant goat. goat. I think he referred to Sydney's town planning, yeah. which is which is how we get, which is how Sydney gets a lot of its streets. But you know, in my final great, you know, as I said, I, I, I really enjoyed this book, is that you managed to combine those great broad sweeps of history, those you know, those those big issues. There's also enough little specific bon mots in there as well that really paint a picture of of, of where we live and how we live. And yeah. once again, mate, congratulations. It's a fantastic book. Thank you very much, Mikey. I really appreciate your time. And thank you very much, um, Bacon Balls. Um, uh, can, you, can Bacon Balls let us know whether he's living in the States at the moment and um, and perhaps give Mari his, his email address so I can contact him later. I'd really like to catch up, Jens. Um, and uh, thank you very much, other um, audience members. I, I hope you uh, enjoy the book. Um, um, so thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks. I'd like to thank both of you. David, congratulations on the book. And thank you, Mikey. Thank you both for a fantastic, very funny, also very informative conversation. And if anyone only has the one copy of the book, well, how do you, how do you give it to someone if you've only got one? Luckily, oh, so it's fine. You can get that from us, but that's okay. That's the picture. If you, look, if you can't get it from readings, we're very comfortable with you also buying it from other people, and then obviously buying another copy from readings. See how this just snowballs into such a great idea. Don't forget this one. So, and Mikey's books there too. Yep. So now that we've given you some recommendations, we've fixed up Christmas. We haven't even got out of November yet. We've solved Australian history. We've got a game show getting sorted out. This has been a very productive event. So congratulations, David. Thank you, Mikey. Thank, Thank you. you all for coming tonight. Uh, remember, if you uh, did book for this, you do uh, get a code to get $5 off a copy of the book. I'm not going to stop plugging that for you, Dave. Congratulations. Thanks, Marie. Thanks, everybody. Good night. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.